Amen. You may be seated. Our sermon passage this morning is found in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through, 20, through 28. You can see that printed there in your bulletin. And just one more time, if you're visiting with us this morning, so glad that you're here. We welcome you. We'd love to get to know you. My name is Ben Griffith. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege to have you in worship this morning. Towards the beginning of his book, Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis grapples with the state of the universe that he sees when he looks around and that you see when you look around. Um, And he struggles with how to account for this tension and this struggle between right and wrong, light and darkness, good and evil that we see in the universe and the world around us. And he, he says that this is one of the central questions that every worldview, every, every religion, every philosophy, and every individual has to deal with, the problem of evil. What do you do with and how do you account for the presence of so much evil and wickedness and fallenness and brokenness and ugliness in the world? What do you do with it? Lewis says that we all have to have an answer to that, and he's right. He says that some religions, some worldviews just ignore it or maybe discount it, maybe say it's all just a matter of perspective. Maybe, maybe if there's no God, if there's no ultimate standard of right and wrong, then we, can't really, we don't really have a right to call something good and something bad. It's all just a matter of preference and perspective. Well, we know that that's not right, and Lewis, Lewis struggles with that in, in, in these early chapters of mere Christianity, and he says that one of the philosophical options that he actually early on found pretty appealing is this idea of, of dualism, dualism, this idea that there are dual powers at work in the universe, an ultimate good and an ultimate evil power at work. Locked into an eternal struggle, and this universe is just the battleground that's always going, for for a warfare that's always going to last, always going to go on. Ultimate good and ultimate evil that are equal and opposites, always duking it out in the universe, and we're just in the battleground. He says that early on, he actually found that a pretty appealing solution, but then he he goes on to say how it actually, it, it can't work. It doesn't work in how, how Christianity is the better and the true uh, way to deal with the problem of evil. But he does say this. He says that Christianity and dualism actually have something in common. And it's this. He writes this. One of the things that surprised me when I first read the, the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power that was at work in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference, though, is that Christianity thinks that this dark power was created by God and was good to begin with, but then went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism that this universe is at war, but it does not think that this is a war between independent powers. Christianity thinks that this is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in the part of the universe that's occupied by the rebel. And then he says this, enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. And Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise. I love how Lewis talks about that. That rings true, doesn't it? That Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in enemy-occupied territory, 
in, in the part of the universe that is occupied by the rebel. But he lands in disguise. We might say he lands undercover. He comes undercover, we might say. That's, that's the story that Mark is beginning to tell us here at the beginning of his gospel. That Jesus is the rightful king that has landed in enemy-occupied territory, coming and announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. And like we heard last week, that means that everybody, by definition, is on the wrong side. That whether religious or irreligious, moral or immoral, um, Jew or Gentile, black or white, the message that we heard last week is that by definition, everyone is on the wrong side, but everyone is invited to repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus comes, he lands as the rightful king, but notice that when he comes, when he lands in enemy-occupied territory announcing his kingdom, he, he lands in disguise. He lands undercover. We, he, he doesn't come with an army and trumpets. He doesn't come like Aladdin shows up uh, to the city of Agrabah in the, in the movie Aladdin after the genie has turned him into the prince. Remember that? He shows up with um, dancers and throwing out money and music and soldiers and animals and gold. Big display of power and authority because he was trying to announce that the... That, that a power has come. But Jesus doesn't show up that way, does he? When Jesus lands in enemy-occupied territory, Mark tells us that he shows up as a lone, solitary individual from this podunk, hick town called Nazareth in the armpit of Israel. <laughs> Someone heard of Nazareth and said, has anything ever good come out of Nazareth? And then when he starts to collect followers, he doesn't collect all the rich and famous, all of the somebodies that were there. We see that he, he goes, first of all, to the, to the blue-collar shift workers that were fishing on the shore of Galilee. Those are his first people that he incorporates and invites into this, this movement of his, this kingdom that is pushing back against the gates of hell. So the king has landed, the rightful king has landed in enemy-occupied ter territory, but he lands in disguise. Why? Because of what he came to do, because of his mission. And that's what Mark is continuing to introduce us here to in these early pages of his gospel. He's introducing us to who Jesus is and what he came to do, to his identity and his mission. And this morning, that is, those are the two main questions before us in our passage this morning. But, but this morning, the, the context, the, the stage where we see those two questions play out is a church service. It's a Sabbath morning church service at the First Presbyterian Church of Capernaum, we might say, where the king goes to church and he finds that even there, it's enemy-occupied territory. Jesus goes from engaging with Satan in the wilderness a few verses ago to engaging with Satan in the pews of the church. And to say the least, what we're going to see here is that this was not a church service that anyone slept through or forgot. <laughs> it was memorable, and we're going to see why. But the question for us is, how did the people respond? How did the people respond there? when they had before them on full display the message of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Did they respond or did they miss him? 
And how do we respond this morning? Those are the questions that, that we see. And so this is God's Word. Let's read it together. Mark chapter 1, 21 through 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you please now share with us your Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see who you are and what you have come to do and what that has to do with us this morning. And so, O oh God, carve out for us ears to hear and eyes to see. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might love you and trust you more from seeing who you are and what you came to do here in this portion of the gospel. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. So here at the beginning of Mark's gospel, again, he's continuing to introduce us to Jesus' identity and his mission, to who he is and what he came to do. The rightful king has landed in England. Those are the three questions that we're going to ask this morning. So first of all, um, let's look at this first question. Who is Jesus? How does Mark show us who Jesus is, what his identity is from this passage here, uh, where Jesus goes to church? Well, look with me again at verse, verses 21 and 22, where Mark writes that they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus here, he shows up to Capernaum. This town is going to be a, a central hub of his teaching ministry for the next few years. Um, he's going to do a lot here in Capernaum. Uh, but this morning, he shows up with his newly minted followers. He goes to church, and pretty soon, uh, don't know how, he's handed the microphone, and he starts to teach and preach. And you could just imagine that, put yourself uh, there in the sandals of the people that were in church that morning, because... Very soon, you could hear a pin drop. Very soon, everybody in that church service was quiet, was trying to pick up their jaws from the floor. They were on the edge of their seats. There was something different, something new, something that they had never heard before going on right before their eyes. Verse 22 tells us that they were astonished at his teaching. Verse 27, they were amazed. So the church, the congregation that morning, they're astonished. They're amazed. This is the most incredible sermon and speaker that they've ever heard. 
There was something absolutely unique and one of a kind about this stranger from Nazareth that got up behind the microphone that morning. There was something that they just couldn't quite put their finger on. Something that was engaging their imaginations and, and capturing their attention like, had, like no one ever had before. But what was it? What was it? Well, I used to think maybe Jesus was just the best public speaker that they had ever heard. Maybe he just was such a dynamic personality, such a commanding presence when he walked in the room that he could walk in and just command people's complete attention. Maybe when he started to speak, he just had such flawless control over his, the inflections of his voice and the way that he moved his hands and his, and his illustrations and his sermon outline. They were all just impeccable. Maybe that's what it was that was just astounding and amazing that morning. You know, it's, it's easy to think that, but that's actually not at all what was going on. Um, the people there that morning were recognizing that there was something uniquely different about Jesus. They weren't just saying that this man is preaching better than the scribes and the Pharisees. They're saying this man is preaching completely different than the Pharisees and scribes. They're saying this man's out of their league on a completely different spectrum. They were recognizing that there wasn't just a difference in degree to Jesus' teaching, but a difference in quality, a difference in kind. That Jesus was on a completely different spectrum than anyone that they had ever heard before. But what was it? What was so amazing and astonishing? Well, Mark tells us twice. It says that he taught them as one who had authority. And then verse 27, the people are asking, what is this? A new teaching, what? With authority. They're recognizing something called authority in Jesus' message and his presence. That Greek word for authority is the word for power, for mastery, strength, and force, and originality. That's what they're recognizing. And again, they weren't just recognizing that Jesus showing up from Nazareth, who had had no public speaking classes, was, was keeping the room in rapt attention. That's not what they were recognizing. What they were seeing was something that was utterly different and unique. And it's kind of funny. I, mean, I want to hear the sermon that they heard that morning. I want, I want that transcribed. I, I want to hear, I want the live stream version of that church service. What was so amazing and astounding about what he was saying, but we don't have anything about what Jesus was actually saying that morning. It's, it's kind of funny, but the only recorded words that we have from Jesus here in this passage is the words in 25 that he speaks to this demon-possessed man. Shut up and get out. That's the only thing that we have from Jesus here in this passage. But obviously, we have so many other examples of Jesus' public teaching ministry throughout the rest of Mark and the rest of the Gospels. So we can look elsewhere to hear what Jesus was teaching, the kinds of things that he was saying that they were reacting to. They recognized his authority when he spoke. And, and Think about it like this. When the scribes and the Pharisees taught, um, they were... Their only kind of sermon method, the, the, the only spiritual diet that the people were used to getting back then from the scribes and Pharisees was this elaborate and wordy religious version of says who. 
Says who? Who says? You know, if you have, um, if you're a parent and you have uh, young children, you, you've heard that phrase a lot. <laughs> when one sibling says to the other, uh, "Change the channel on TV," or "Let me borrow that," or "Let me let me have that um, out of the refrigerator," you probably hear this phrase a lot around your house. Says who? Who says? Are you telling me to change the channel on your authority or on the authority of mom and dad? Because there's a big difference there. I'll listen to you if you're speaking with the authority of mom and dad, but not if you're just coming at it uh, with, with your own authority. And when the Pharisees and the scribes taught, it was, just, it was just for hundreds of years this elaborate, sophisticated, probably pretty boring sermon methodology of says who? They would go and point from one authority to another, whether it was the, the Old Testament or, 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 or tradition or what a famous scribe or Pharisee from the past or the present said about this teaching or that teaching. So a typical sermon you might hear on Sunday morning is something like, in Isaiah, you read this, and that means that you need to do this. And, and this person back then translated it this way and, and meant that you need to do this. And it was just... It was just one elaborate version of, you need to do this because this person said this. Says who? Who says? (laughs) Um, In other words, think about it like this. The only spiritual diet that the people were receiving for hundreds of years was a cover song. They were only hearing cover songs. When When the scribes and the Pharisees taught they could only sing someone else's music. They could only sing someone else's songs. And it was the best song in the world. The story about God and His kingdom and what He's doing in the world. But all that the people were used to hearing was flat, out-of-tune cover songs sung by somebody else. There's a video that I saw a few years ago um, taken at a food court, uh, someone on their iPhone that was, um, that was at this karaoke machine in this food court in a mall somewhere, I think, in Minnesota. And it was just, you know, a karaoke competition. Uh, they, someone had set up a stage there in the middle of the mall, and one singer after another was getting up and singing cover songs, karaoke songs. <laughs> and you can just tell the people around are milling around trying to eat their Chick-fil-A and trying not to listen to whoever was singing because it was just pretty bad karaoke, right? But this teenager, this, this, this teenage girl gets up, probably 15 years old, and she starts singing this Ed Sheeran song. I think it was singing, uh, Thinking Out Loud was the song. If you're not familiar with Ed Sheeran, just ask the teenage girl sitting next to you. They know who Ed Sheeran is. Um, and she starts singing this song, and you can just tell it's not making a dent. Nobody's really listening but then you start to see out of the corner of the camera this disturbance. This, this little wave of energy goes through the crowd. And people start to turn their heads and gasp and point. And everyone starts to look and pay attention as this red-headed young man walks up onto the stage and puts his arm around this girl singing the Ed Sheeran song. And it's Ed Sheeran. It's the real original recording artist. And he shows up and starts singing his song with her. (laughs) And the whole mall in 10 seconds is there. That scene goes from someone singing a bad cover song that no one was listening to 
to the original recording artist singing his song, and everyone was listening. Y'all, that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here in church this morning. The original recording artist walks up to the microphone, and he starts singing his song. Jesus walks behind the microphone, and he starts teaching about God and the kingdom of God and love and justice and, and loving your neighbor and mercy and what God requires and what God's doing in the world. And the people can tell this guy's not singing a cover song. He's singing it like he's the original recording artist. He's singing it like it's his music, like he wrote it, and like it's about him. That's what they recognized. Because he's saying things like, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. And that's where the Pharisees and scribes would stop teaching. But Jesus goes on, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, no one had ever said that before. Jesus is saying things like, truly, truly, I say to you. No one had ever had the gall to say that before. They're hearing things come out of Jesus' mouth like, he who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The reason that they're so astonished and amazed and at the edge of their seat at what Jesus is saying is because of his authority. In other words, do you see a word in that, another word in that word authority? He's speaking to them as the, as the author. He's speaking to them as the author, as the original recording artist. He's not pointing to anyone outside or anything above him to appeal to. He's because his claim is that there is nothing or no one above me to appeal to. He's claiming to be the voice that they have heard their whole lives speaking to them in the Old Testament. The voice that Israel heard coming out of the cloud on Mount Sinai. He doesn't appeal to that voice. He says, that, that's me. This is the Jesus that Mark wants to introduce you to here at the beginning of his gospel. This is his identity, who he is, the claim that Jesus is making about himself. He's not claiming to just be another religious teacher or another, or another religious figure. He's not even claiming to be the best one. He's claiming to be someone entirely different. He's claiming to be the author of the story. He's claiming to be the original recording artist of the music. He's claiming to be the author that has written himself into his own story. The original recording artist who has written himself into the music with authority as the author. You see, Jesus, he's not claiming to just be another character in the story, brothers and sisters. He's claiming to be the character in the story. And he's claiming to be the one who wrote it and the one that it's all about. That's who Jesus wants to introduce you to. Now, there's so many directions that we could go here. There's so many directions, but we, before we move on to the second point, I, I want you to just see here that if this is true, if Jesus is the author who speaks with authority because he's the original recording artist of the, of the music, that he's the one that, that, that started the whole, the whole song off in Genesis 1 by singing it all into creation, if this is the one who has written himself into the story, then y'all, you don't have the option of just treating him 
like one of the characters in your story. That option is not up to you. If this is true, then Jesus has written himself into the story of the world as the main character, but also as the main character of your story. This morning, we just don't have the option to treat Jesus as just another piece of our puzzle, as just another one of our influences, as just another voice that we're listening to, as just another way that we're going to understand ourselves. Jesus does not leave you that option. He says, I want you to listen to my voice and follow me into life and joy and freedom because I'm the one who's been writing the story from the very beginning. And I know your name. And I come with the authority of the very author who wrote it all in the first place. And I want to be the main character in your story. That's what the people recognized that morning. This this claim of Jesus, of who he is. So Mark tells us this is who he is. This is his identity. But he also tells us, secondly, what he came to do, his mission. If this is who Jesus is, if, if Jesus has authority because he's the original author, the original recording artist who wrote himself into the, to the music, why did he do it? Why did the author write himself into his own story? Well, we, we begin to see why when we see how Jesus handles this rude interruption here in the middle of, of the church service that day. We all know what interruptions are like in the middle of church services, whether it's a, a baby crying or a microphone going out or something like that. But this was something different. Look in verse 23, or a phone call. Um, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. It's really interesting here that most commentators, they they think that this man was probably a local member or regular attender of this synagogue. I I, I used to tend to think this was just a man who would come off the streets, maybe out of the woods that day that nobody knew. But most commentators agree that this man was probably a regular fixture here in this synagogue. Which means that either he was always there disrupting and making a scene because of the the unclean spirit within him and no one can control him or do anything about it. Or it means that he had always been there but had never been disturbed. Never been confronted or pushed back on from anything that he heard from the pulpit. He had stayed safe. We don't know why, but in any case, when Jesus starts speaking... (laughs) This man can't stay in his seat anymore. He starts screaming from the back of the room, and we can tell that one of Satan's generals has come to church that morning too. Um, This man is one of the sad, miserable trophies in Satan's trophy case. He's a slave to darkness, possessed by a dark, ancient enemy. He's an avatar of the enemy. This man, think about it, is the epitome of uncleanness. Mark tells us that he has an unclean spirit. But think about this. Back then, you were untouchable. You were ceremonially unclean if you came in contact with with a dead person or a corpse. But this man literally has something dead living in him. He is controlled by an ancient evil 
spirit that is worse than anything that you could ever encounter. This man is enemy-occupied territory, which means that this is a cosmic confrontation happening on the third pew of the church that morning. If Jesus is heaven that has come to earth, then this man is a picture of hell that has come to earth. And one of them is going to win. This man cries out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Y'all, that question, or that series of questions, it's just not a genuinely curious question. This man is not looking for information. These are the kind of questions that bullies ask on a playground. What are you looking at? What do you have? What's your problem? You know, when a bully asks you that on a playground, that bully's not asking for information. He's communicating to you he's about to punch your face in and that you're on his turf. That's the kind of question that's coming to Jesus from this demon. And commentators agree that, that when this demon um, uses Jesus' name here, when he identifies him as Jesus of Nazareth and the Holy One of Israel, that what he's doing is he's trying to gain mastery over Jesus. There was an assumption back then that if you knew the name of the Spirit that you were trying to encounter, then you had some kind of degree of manipulation or control over it. If you knew the the name of the Spirit that you were encountering, then you had some kind of authority over it. And so you see what this demon is doing. You see what this lieutenant from hell is doing. He's coming out swinging, and he's swinging hard. He's bowing up to Jesus, and he's saying, This is my turf. You're on my playground. This is my territory. And it was a one-two punch, brothers and sisters, that, that you and I, if, if, if it was aimed at us, it would crumble us in a heartbeat. We would crumble before the fury that Jesus encounters here in church that day. But look at what Jesus does. It's the only recorded words that we have from Jesus in this passage. Be silent and come out of him. It's actually colloquial language that's really shut up and get out. Jesus says, shut up, sit down, and get out. He speaks to one of Satan's top generals like he's your dog that has wandered into the wrong room. He'll speak to a storm like this in just a few chapters. This is one of Satan's commandos, one of the ancient powers of darkness. And you notice Jesus doesn't wave a wand. He doesn't, he doesn't say an incantation or a spell. There's, no, there's none of that to go through. He simply speaks. Shut up and get out. And this ancient evil general from the gates of hell tucks its tail and runs at the voice of Jesus. It's here, y'all, that we see a picture, a preview, a a, a case in point of what Jesus came to do, of of his mission, (laughs) why the author wrote himself into the story. This is why he came to destroy darkness without destroying those in the dark. He came to end all uncleanness without ending those who were unclean. Do you see the difference there? He came to put an end to the rebellion without putting an end to the rebels. 
Because we see here, don't we, the, the unrivaled, unparalleled authority and power of Jesus. But we also see coupled with it this incredible precision that Jesus is able to cast out what is unclean about this man without casting him out. No one else was able to do that. He banishes the darkness without banishing the one who was enslaved in the darkness. But he restores him and welcomes him home and heals him. This is what Jesus came to do. This is his mission. This is why the original recording artist wrote himself into the music. He came to end your uncleanness without ending you. He came to separate from you what is separating you from God. He came to remove your guilt and your shame and your stain and all of the evidence that's against you that Satan would point to and say, here's why God should not love you. He came to speak a word to that shame and say, sit down, shut up, and never open your mouth again. To cast it as far as the east is from the west. Everything that's unclean about you. Everything that's unpresentable and dirty. No matter how deep of a stain it is. No matter what part of your story it is. Jesus came to speak to that. And say, don't open your mouth and accuse my child again. Sit down. Shut up. And get out. That's what he came to do. But how did he come to do it? Well, we see it's the most surprising twist of the story that anyone could have ever imagined. The demons, they expected that day for Jesus to cast them out immediately, right there. They didn't expect Jesus to say, get out, I've got more to do. But we see a hint of what Jesus came to do from this passage in, in Colossians that we've already read together this morning where where Paul writes that God made us alive together with Christ. How? Having forgiven us of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. There was this record of debt, this, this huge, enormous book that was, that was screaming at you and accusing you of your guilt and your shame. But what did God do with it? Paul says... This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He cast it out. He set it aside. But looking further into the story of the gospel, we know that that looked like nailing Jesus to the cross. He didn't nail aside a book. He nailed and set aside a person. The one who had written himself into the story in the first place came to be set aside, to be cast out so that you could be welcomed in, so that you could hear his voice speaking to you this morning. You are my beloved child, and in you I am well pleased. So that you could never hear the voice of your accuser accusing you again. Because it's been nailed to the cross and set aside forever. That's who he is and that's why he came. But to close with and briefly, how do we respond? 
What kind of a response does this elicit from us? Well, I want you to notice the, the folks in church that day, the members of First Presbyterian Synagogue in Capernaum, they were amazed, they were astounded. But just two chapters later, in Mark chapter 3, we read that when Jesus shows up and teaches behind this very same microphone, it says that Jesus looked out at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. They were amazed. They were astounded, but they did not believe. And just, well, in in Matthew chapter 11, we hear some of Jesus' harshest words directed at this town and the people that would have been in church with Jesus this day when, when Jesus himself said, Woe to you, Capernaum, because if I had done in Sodom and Gomorrah what you saw me do here, they would have repented and believed, but you didn't. They were amazed, they were curious, they were fascinated, but they didn't believe. And even the demons here, we see, how do they respond to Jesus? Well, they know a lot. They have better theology than you and I do. They have this, an impeccable theology of the incarnation, of how God became man. You notice that they identify him as Jesus of Nazareth, fully human, who is also the Holy One of God, the divine one who spoke them into existence. They know a lot. They have a good theology of the final judgment. But all of their theology could not save them. They, as James says, they, even the demons believe, but they shudder. And even the, Capernaum, the people of Capernaum, they, they were astounded and amazed, but they walked away missing Jesus. What about you? What about me this morning? Is Jesus just another character in your story? The thing is, he doesn't leave us that option. If he is second place in your life, then you've missed him. If he's just one more voice in your life, then you're not listening. The thing is, he came to set you free. Following Jesus and becoming enslaved to him means real freedom, real liberty. Whatever else you're following this morning, whatever voice you might be listening to, whatever else you're following, it will lead you to the picture of what this man, this demon-possessed man looked like. Real enslavement. But this morning, brothers and sisters, for the first time or for the hundred thousandth time, Jesus is inviting you to follow him, to hear his voice, and to discover true freedom and true liberty. Following the voice of of Christ, who is the true author, (laughs) the original recording artist who wrote himself into the music so that he could tell you of his love for you. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would that you would help us to follow you. There is no other motivation that's better than this good news of the gospel right now. Nothing else can can motivate us to follow you through thick and thin, through valleys of the shadow of death and through green pastures. Nothing else can fill our sails and give us joy than by hearing your voice speak to us 
of your love. And so carve out for us, Lord, ears to hear you speaking to us with this kind of authority that you love us as we follow you this week into the world in which you call us. Give us grace to do that, we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.